Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the If You Market podcast brought to you by Mountaintop Data and Joto PR. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm Sky Cassidy, and today we'll be talking with Quimby Melton of Confection about planning for privacy-first marketing. Quimby is Confection's co-founder and CEO. He spent his career building a diverse range of businesses and products, including a, a marketing consulting agency, a logistics application for offshore energy market, two business marketing apps, a modular housing company, and a handful of uh, content sites and uh, short firms. That is, or short films, short firms, <laughs> short films. That's that is quite an eclectic uh, collection of of businesses to work in there, there Quimby. Yeah, I've, I've had a, I've been really fortunate to work on a lot of interesting projects and things that I was really passionate about, and uh, I've learned a lot along the way. So I feel really, really fortunate about the career path I've been able to take since I left school. I have to say, I feel better about it. My misread of saying short firms, I was like, oh, what's a short so firm? You started a bunch of firms that that just do short sales of the stock yep, market. That it. sounds pretty sketchy. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh wait, films. That's way better. That's right, way right, right. better. That's when I was living down in your neck of the woods. Yeah. Fan, uh, fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on the show. The topic today: planning planning for privacy first marketing. Um, I think it's something very. Uh, necessary for marketers to start thinking about now your company though confection people think you're gonna they're, they're gonna think you make um, cupcakes or something like that um, but I want to talk right off the bat more about your company than we normally do because this is kind of what your company does and I think most people have never heard of companies like yours because it is it is a very new thing I mean there's probably only a couple companies even even creating what you're creating um, so can you describe for the listeners a little bit, what your company does, why, and then might as well throw in there while we're at it, how and why you you even started this company. Right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast, because I think this is a really, really important topic that we're talking about, especially for everybody who's going to be listening. So people in our professional space. So I think you're right. You know, Confection really does occupy a new kind of category um, that we're currently calling data generators. And, you know, there's a real space for making sure that what gets reported is actually what's coming in, right? So part of it is about authenticating data and making sure that that information is is reliable. Another part of it is making sure that people have adequate control over their data and that you generate data in a way that's compliant with with GDPR and other types of privacy laws. So that's really the space that that products like Confection occupy. Um, And, you know, something you and I've talked a little bit about too is, you know, like what, what does privacy first mean? Like, what are we looking out to in terms of privacy first? And so kind of the why and the what are mixed in with that, where, you know, I think a lot of people misunderstand what's happening with the shift to privacy first. You know, we talk a lot about tags and cookies and pixels and cross-domain scripts, but it's really about more than just who accesses data um, and who who processes and controls controls it. It's about more than device IDs and IP addresses. It's really about the end of the way marketers like ourselves um, and developers have gathered and used online data for a really long time, you know, since the 90s, really. And, uh, you know, this is really frightening and disruptive, but it's also a really great opportunity to rethink the way data moves around and to ultimately build a better, more compliant web. So with respect to confection, what I tell people a lot is we're, we're less like a software startup and really more like a CapEx project, you know, and I try to encourage people to think about us building a protocol, you know, and that being similar to creating a new kind of energy grid um, for, for data and the way it moves around on the world. It seems almost like you're building something for a situation that's not quite here yet. 
Well, that's that's a good point. I think that maybe it's another misconception about privacy first. And frankly, it was a surprise to us too, because you know we talk about uh, you know things like privacy first and the death of third party cookies. We talk about them like they're forward looking issues, you know. But the truth is that privacy first has really impacted our productivity and our spending since 2017. And the reason for that is that's when Safari and Firefox stopped supporting third party cookies. So, you know, I thought we were early when we started in May of last year. Oh, we got really going in May of last year. I thought we were early, but then we found out we were actually, you know, we've been, this problem has existed for quite a while. So, and I think in terms of brass tacks, what that translates into is, you know, when Safari and Firefox enjoy maybe 20 to 25% of users on the web, right? So that means that over the last four years, you know, we've really had a situation where, you know, uh, ad tech and MarTech tools are probably only, you know, 75 to 80% effective. So that's 20, 25% of waste and it's been compounding for four years, right? So these are real numbers that, that, we're, that we're talking about. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about Safari and Firefox, we're not even talking about things like Tor and VPNs that are also creating additional headwinds for traditional generation uh, methods. Um, so in our case, you know, we're really trying to rethink the way that data is gathered, both in terms of compliance, but also the underlying technology. And the goal, you know, for us is accepting that the front end has become unstable, and that would be the browser level as well as the device level. Unstable, unreliable, so we really have to move to the server side to do our best work going forward, both for businesses and everyday web users. So I've seen a couple companies like yours, and I actually have a talk coming up on data privacy. And so I've been looking into this a bit, and uh, I might get a little... Um, controversial on your business model here or not controversial. I, I might, I, this might be an attack. So no, no, <laughs> be prepared. Um, it appears to me that, that what your company does and, and basically, so I have this, this talk I'm going to be giving soon and I was preparing for it. And one of the lines I put in there was that there's these companies like this when it comes to data privacy and I don't trust them yet. It appears mm -hmm. it's this go between level, this kind of proxy, um, to be compliant or to have the appearance of compliance or almost to like money launder the data for the, the, the end users. I don't fully understand yet what your company does. So correct me in the areas I get it wrong. And then I think a lot of this, when it comes to data privacy, a lot of it's intent. Um, but it appears a company like yours could create the central repository of data and say, you're no longer going to have your profile on LinkedIn and on Google and on Facebook. Your information is going to be in our, in our um, space and you can control it all from there. You can control what information is there and what's not. And then it gets pushed out to these third parties and it gives them this air of, uh, oh, we're no longer in control of the data. They still have access to the information, to everything you do on their platform, though. And, and then this other company, your company in this case, gets to insert itself in the middle and monetize the data also. Another layer of data monetization, really. Um, I guess it's not fair to say, is that what your company does? <laughs> but are you creating that sort of a structure where people can manage their data themselves and then other companies. Somebody wants to come and create a social media, they wouldn't say sign up and enter all, in all your info. They would just access a company like yours to to have the profile information there. Is that is that some of what your company does? So I, I definitely think it's a possible use case, right? In terms of technology, that makes a lot of sense, and there it would be very few impediments to that from a technology perspective. 
from a social perspective and a business interest perspective, it gets more complicated, right? So I wouldn't say, you know, success for us, you know, first and foremost is rebuilding trust with, with, with everyday web users. I mean, that's part of our core mission is rebuilding trust and also facilitating data exchanges in which people are a bigger part of the conversation. And personally, I mean, that's one of my operating ideas is that, and one of the reasons people get so resentful about this is that they're just left out of the conversation. So it kind of creates a paternalistic environment where, you know, a large data companies are essentially managing information for you, doing what they will with it. And people are just find themselves like sitting at the kid's table, right? And no one likes that feeling. Right. So our goal really would to get people more involved in the conversation, give them better control, which honestly translates into business value too, because if you allow people to manage their own data more proactively, some people will opt out. There's no doubt about that. Other people might get involved for some kind of financial incentive, perhaps, or just to manage it more effectively so that the ads they get or the profiles they create are more accurate, right? So right. I think there's a real business case to be made as well as a you know, good intentions um, compliance case for, allow, for get, making people part of the conversation with respect to their own data. Yeah, and um, full disclosure, I would say the talk I'm giving is to tell people that they don't own their data. So it, it might actually um, fly in the face of a little bit of the purpose of your company, but I'm telling people my company is a data company. I thought about this a lot and people don't own, they think they own their information. And I feel like social media companies came in and conned the information away from them and made it public. But and now people are realizing, oops, it's almost like uh, early on in oil. I'm sure plenty of people sold their land that had tons of oil on it, not knowing this value was there. And they kind of got conned out yeah. of the value of, oh, look what was under the ground here. The person buying it knew it. So it's very unethical to do that. Yep. Um, the person that's selling a, it a didn't. Um, but then it's, it's a metaf good metaphor on the surface. But then once you get into it, with your information, you don't really own your information because it's public. So that, that's where it falls apart because the oil, you, if you own the land, you'd actually own that. And then it it's doesn't work so well. Um, but my belief on this is there's certain information that's just public because humans share information. And the analogy, I, and I think we'll, this will air after I, I give my presentation. So, but I use a walking the dog analogy and it's basically saying, hey, you go walk your dog. You see things about your neighbors. Your neighbors see things about you. They know things about you. Some of them trust you more because they see you walking a dog. Um, some of them are cat people and they don't like you. Some of them like your particular type of dog. Some of them see that you don't pick up the, when the dog poops on their lawn, you don't pick it up. And they gather tons of information about you, how tall you are, what you look like, you know, all this information. Maybe you stop and talk to them. They get even more information and you don't own that you're out in public and you're putting the information out in public. And as humans, we have to be able to openly exchange information with each other in order to survive as a group organism kind of, and people, because of the abuses, I think social media companies did people want to think and have been told that they own their data or should own their data. And my response to that is no, you don't. And you shouldn't. That's not how it works. Societies don't work. If you can put yourself in a bubble or tell people they have to forget that they saw you and forget what they know about you. And it's, it might be hard for some people to take, but there is a cutoff line on, on how much privacy you actually have. And that can be violated. Sure. People can know things they shouldn't about you. People can violate your, your privacy and take information that they shouldn't have that you didn't make public, but people think, you know, their basic, like what we keep on people, their name, their phone number, mm -hmm. their, their uh, address, all business stuff, but their business email address, that kind of stuff. 
that they own that and they should be able to say, you can't have that anymore. And some of these data privacy laws go that far. And we say, one, they shouldn't, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. That's not to tell somebody they own something that they do not and that people aren't allowed to know that that's there um, is just not how humans and social organisms um, work. You, you can't work if you're told you're not allowed to know stuff about people, especially mm -hmm. businesses. You want to market. And then it gets down to the topic of the more information you know, the better you can market to people and not market to people who wouldn't be interested. And I think you touched think on right. that. Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm sympathetic to that point of view, you know, the, the major themes of your point of view. One particular thing I would say is, you know, confection specifically is probably less interested in ownership, right? Which is a complex, you know, legal issue. You know, we're much more interested in management, I would say, and utility. So on the business side as well as the, the use, make use of this information, this important social resource in a more meaningful way. So just to kind of underscore that. And also, and this is something you and I chatted about before, about the concept of personal choice being very, very important with this, about being realistic and honest with yourself about what you share, when you share it, and the decisions you make. And that's an equally valid part of the conversation as any sense of like impropriety or theft or, you know, propriety, you know property disputes that uh, uh, go around data. You know, personal choice and making informed choices about what you do with your data is also really important. Um, I just wanted to underscore too, you know, what you're saying too about, you know, the nature of data kind of philosophically, you know, and I think a lot of people in our world spend a lot of time debating about who owns it. What's the difference between zero party data and first party data? You know, what limitations should the state put on it? And I think that those conversations are important, but I think that they overlook the larger truth, which you're talking about that, you know, data is a public utility like energy and water, you know, and like language and math, it's owned by everyone and no one simultaneously. We all participate in it. We have use rights, but the idea that we own it absolutely in the way we might own a car or something is very, very challenging. And I think well, once we it's accept that- It's not a tangible object. It's not a tangible you thing, right? You can't unsee it. You can't unthink it. Mm -hmm. You can't, un I mean, you can forget something, but someone can't force you to. Right. <laughs> like that's once the information is known, it, it, it's known. For and, sure. And, and I think once we accept that, you know, both the points you were making and this concept of data as utility, right, as, you know, social resource, you know, I think once we accept that, we can start to build better systems that give people more privacy and better control over their data and also help businesses get the data they need to, you know, to create value and serve their customers better and build better products. So really mm -hmm. trying to find out where's that negative space in between all these positive pressures, right, the legal positive pressure, you know, then you have, you know, personal interest, like people interested in their own data and in the business interest. And really, I like to think that's the space that confection and products like ours occupies that negative space inside all those positive pressures. So it seems like you're covering a couple things. You're covering the potential for overreaching data laws. Like mm -hmm. I consider GDPR a bad data law. I think they go way too far. And they're basically saying people own all this information. Um, and then you have uh, laws like um, uh, what the, the CC... I'm now, now I'm blanking on it. The California Consumer CCPA, Protection Act, yep. CCPA, yeah. And there's one in Which, Brazil too, the LGPD, and there's one in South Africa as well. Yeah. I, I think California's law gets it pretty right. Um, you're allowed to tell companies to, I need to know what you know about me, and, I, and then I need you to, uh, to get rid of it. But they don't do what GDPR does, which creates this weird situation where they're saying you can't have this information even to know that you shouldn't have it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you're not allowed to remember that you're not supposed to know this. Um, so, so then you- It's hard. Like, how do you, this yeah. is something we struggle with as well with GDPR. Yeah. I would agree with you. Yep. I would call it like a Medusa effect where it's basically like, you're not allowed to look at this. So if you do, you're dead. 
but right. you won't know you looked at it until you're already turned to stone. So good exactly. luck. Exactly. Like, and there's a paradox too, in terms of how do you, how do you respect the right to be forgotten and also demonstrate that you're not using information incorrectly or as people have requested that you use it. So it's a, there, I think there's some paradoxes in GDPR. I would agree with that. These are just my own personal feelings that GDPR is filled with a couple of paradoxes. And I would agree that, again, I think CCPA does a very nice balancing act between the business of, I mean, the interest of businesses and the interest of everyday yeah. Californians in this case. And then back to the philosophical side, I take the position of you can tell a company not to know this about you, but you don't own that information. I have no problem because it actually makes sense if somebody says, hey, I don't want you to have this info on me. We, we run a friction score here, and that would be the ultimate friction score of the, if the purpose of having the information is to market better to them, mm-hmm. to provide them the type of content they would like, and to not send messaging to them that they wouldn't be interested in, then somebody telling you, I'm not interested in anything, leave me the hell alone, is kind of a great thing to know because now you're not wasting marketing on somebody who's just going to be angry because that's the mm-hmm. last thing you want as a marketer. It isn't like you get anything out of somebody who doesn't want to be contacted in the first place. It's like, yes, we would love nothing more than to remove you from our company's marketing if you want to be removed. So that's just done, I would say, out of a good marketing practice versus out of out of the law. If somebody wants to make a law like, like the California one that says you have to do that, I say, okay, I don't think philosophically that's right, but I have no problem with it because marketing-wise, it's right anyway. Yeah. Um, so, and, and they don't say you have to remove it. They let you remember they let you flag this person as don't have this stuff, which is what right. you really want to be able to do. Um, so, so I think it works in that way. It's a little overreaching, but where it overreaches is into an area that marketing wise, you didn't want to touch them anyway. Um, I couldn't so- agree more. And I think, you know, this is back to the idea of making a business case for involving people in data management, you know, and managing their own data is, you know, if you allow that, you're going to, people who want to opt out and who don't want to be bothered, that's good information from a marketing and sales standpoint, Right. And allowing people to fine tune their preferences or improve whatever data you have on them can only be a good thing in this regard in terms of it makes marketing more effective. So I think this is a good point and it really helps make the business case for the kinds of things we're trying to do. And for traditional marketing, knowing that is just another data point. That's the ultimate least useful data point. Right. Um, so let's we kind of went on a little bit of a detour there. I want to get back to the planning for privacy first marketing sure. topic. Um and, and you, I think you touched on it a little bit, but I'm going to ask it again, just to make sure the listeners can understand what does privacy first marketing mean? What is, yep. can you give some examples of how that affects things like some, some real world examples or hypotheticals on what, what that might do? Absolutely. So again, you know, I think cookies, you know, are kind of the marquee way that people discuss this, this issue. And I think the term cookie really gets used in a loose way. And so a lot of times people can say cookie and they actually mean something else, right? And so it's, it's sort of a word that's used to mean more than it actually is. And, and, and what I mean is it means more than just browser level data storage and then access, right? So really, I think as we go forward, you know, cookies are part of the issue and it's, you know, well-known and really discussed. But the truth is that, you know, as we enter privacy first and in privacy first browsing environments, you know, cornerstone marketing tools are going to be unable to write data to customer accounts and communicate with one another. That's a problem, you know, in, in terms of details, that means that event tracking fails, forms break, and ads disappear and data stops flowing, right? And I don't think it's too much to suggest that what we're looking at here, and one of the reasons I think it can be challenging to get people to wrap their heads around it, 
is it sort of to marketers what a major like TCP IP disruption would be to network IT pros, right? Like this is the foundational system that moves bits of information around the web in and out of your CRM. It allows your, you know, your customers to communicate with you. So it's a big, it's a big disruption on, on the fundamental systems level. Let me step in for the listeners and, and see if I, I'm understanding it right. Cause they're hearing the same thing. Um, so when you're talking about cookies and I feel like there's, you know, down the road, people are going to talk about the cookie wars and they'll be very confused about what that it. means. That's um, a great level. I think you're, that's the book. That's the book that's going to be written um, about this, yes. cookie wars. The 2020 cookie wars. That's great. Uh, you're like, what happened? Is this mm-hmm. between Nestle and Toll House or right. aren't they the same company? Um, so just picturing a bunch of elves and burning trees and stuff mm-hmm. now. So we have the cookie situation and you're saying ads stop being served. So you have display ads online. You go to a website and you see an ad about couches and you're like, that's weird. I was couch shopping on Amazon the other day and now I see nothing but advertisements for couches. Mm -hmm. And it's because they have cookie tracked your um, search for a product and now they're displaying those, what they believe are those relevant, more relevant ads to you. Is that a good example of how it works? It is. And that could break in two ways, right? First of all, the easy way is you could just not see the ad at all. You just see an empty space. Um, and that's because, you know, some script is being blocked by your browser or an ad blocker tool or something. So that's the easy one. And then as far as, you know, making, uh, you know, retargeting you with things you've seen in the past, that could break as well because either the cookie sync stops working, that information doesn't get writ- written in the first place, or like I said a second ago, there's an ad outage. So there's several different ways that that could, uh, that mm-hmm. could collapse. But what I would say is, can't the ad companies just go back to a lower lower layer of ad distribution of saying, you're on a fantasy football website, I'm just going to serve you ads that are relevant for the general target audience on this site. So at one point, that's all they did on sites. And then they seem to have shifted over 100% to this retargeting technique and and then once they can't retarget, if they don't have that information, it just breaks. Why not just shift back to the general target audience and say, I'm going to show you an ad for Wingstop because you're on a fantasy football site. We don't know who you are. We don't need to. The whole point of content is it's targeted to a specific type of audience. And we can now serve soap ads to the people watching daytime TV soap opera shows because we know the type of demographic that's interested in this content. Um couldn't they just shift back to content-based targeting or is it just so much that they want that higher level of targeting that they have to have it? So, and this is a great question. You know, I've chatted a little about this too, about kind of a return to the madman, you know, or madmen audience groupings, right? And, you know, I'm a little obnoxious with this because I kind of want to have my cake and eat it too. So I apologize in advance. I'd say, <laughs> you know, first and foremost, I think, you know, abandoning all the personalization gains, right? That we've seen over the last few decades would be a big mistake. And just saying, let's just go back to these monolithic audience groupings. You know, I think that there's a lot of value to the segmentations and the, you know, the really magical qualities of data-driven sales and marketing. So I would advocate for keeping those alive using a new protocol, a new system that's more compliant, respects people's um, desire to be targeted and and, and along those lines. But still being able to individually target, which means you have to have a profile with specific information constantly gathered on it. And honestly, Scott, I mean, I come at that honest from more of a marketing operations perspective than I do just a pure ad perspective, because while targeted ads obviously are a very important part of the stack, you know, I'm thinking much deeper into the funnel. I'm thinking about building real relationships, ABM style marketing. So for me, you know, the 
the uh, the ad issue is the as the icing on the cake, right? It's, it's a piece of the larger horde that you know the tip of the iceberg. For me, it's really about all the things that start to fall apart deeper and deeper in the funnel, especially with B two B ABM style marketing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So you have so, a company like Facebook comes along and they create the site and they say, we're never going to have ads on it. And one of the questions I have for that, and I think this comes up in my future talk mm-hmm. here is, I wonder how early on Facebook knew what they were going to become and were planning for it. Um, like at some point they were saying one thing, but knew they were working towards this larger, this larger thing. Mm-hmm. So when they first created the company, maybe they didn't see what they are now, but somewhere along the line, they said, here's where we're going to make this billion dollars. Mm-hmm. It's this, this whole no ad thing. We're going to, we're going to collect all this information and monetize it. And I would really like to know how soon they knew that, um, that that's where they were going. But all that aside, so they collect all this information to help them target ads to you better. And that is good. I, I, I agree with the more information you have, the better experience you can provide people, the less you can put things they don't want in front of them, or you can put things they, they, they are interested in. But a company like yours, if you come in and you have all that, you're going you're gonna to centralize that information, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, Facebook tricked people into giving them all the info because nobody knew the value of this information, basically, I I would say. And companies like them. They're just an easy example. Um, And ultimately, people opted in to providing all this info. Mm -hmm. But it was a conned opt-in, kind of. They didn't know the extent of what they were opting in for. A company like yours, are you creating kind of a central area where people can opt in? Because it seems like ultimately... A lot, what a lot of people are going to want to do is say, yeah, I don't want just the generic ads. Please do serve me things I'm interested in. In fact, here's my specific interests and, uh, and I want this level of targeting on myself. And then you, your company would be the central space that allows that, that better customer experience through the information they have knowingly volunteered this time versus uh, been conned out of. I think that's right. And, and so just on like in the weeds a little bit on the product feature. So, you know, confection is, is intentionally designed to not collect uh, PII, personally identifiable information, unless the user opts in. So, you know, a lot of what flows through confection is simply aggregate, you know, more or less anonymous information. And that's by design, um, you know, in terms of us being you know, you know, compliant at the, at the product level. Another thing is, you know, in some ways, confection can act as a pipe, but, you know, it's a conduit where you don't actually store any information. And we first started going out last year and talking to, to people, especially large enterprise customers. What they said is, you know, we really don't want you to store any data for us. We just want you to make sure it makes it into Salesforce, right? Or makes it into whatever kind of, you know, analytics platform we're using or something like that. So in a lot of ways, Confection is just the conduit. And it's not necessarily our goal to build up a large data set on people that we then run ads against or something. It almost we, sounds like you just said, they're saying, we don't want you to store it. We just want you to launder it. <laughs> right. And, and that's something you know, I've chatted about too, you know, and I think that that's a fair question. Um, and, you know, who's the end user and where is it going? So, you know, it's our job obviously to disclose that, you know, to, to everyday web users and the people who land on sites 
that uh, have convection installed. You know, I would say in terms of cultural values, like, and what we're trying to build at a high level, certainly that would not be aligned with helping people do bad things with, with people's data. You know, our goal is to make sure that what flows uh, comes in, you know, and, and again, back to the idea of GDPR in terms of data handler, like what is a data handler, you know, making sure that we operate in alignment with, with those kinds of values. So one thing I noticed is noticing there's a couple companies like yours that, that have come to the surface that I have noticed, which means there's a handful more that, that I haven't noticed. Um, and it makes me think one of the issues with Facebook is there's only one Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, if only MySpace had done a better job sticking around, there's only, right. there's no competition. So people get pissed at Facebook because something happens and then they have quit Facebook day. And then half the people don't log in for the first two hours because they really want to quit Facebook. And then they go back because there's no, there's no competition. There's no option to go somewhere else. I am glad to see there appear to be a handful of companies like yours because it seems if, if what you're selling is trust, basically, that's a huge part of what you're providing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering how public companies like yours are going to be in wanting people to know they're even there kind of so that there, there, there are options, basically people can say, Oh, here's the 10 biggest companies that are doing this. And, and this one, something really bad just came out about these guys and their business practices. So now anybody using them, I really don't want to um, basically keeping people behaving well through competition. If trust is, the big selling point on your company, then people need to know who you are and who the other people are so that they can go to whoever's most trusted. And then I feel like the competition for the business and for people to use you because your platform is more trusted would naturally um, make your products better for the end user versus for the Facebook or for the ad um, companies and whatnot. So, so I guess my, my question, my long-winded question is, do you intend your company to be very public facing and should other companies in order to create this need for competition to make sure your product development is driven by the consumer's wants and needs versus your kind of your customer, the corporation's wants and needs? I think that's fair. Um, and, I, you know, one of the, there are two things that get me up in the morning, get me really excited about confection. One is this CapEx idea, you know, the idea that we're building something large, right, and something uh, complicated and challenging and interesting. The other is this contest of ideas surrounding all these topics, right? And, and you know, this manifests itself in some, some, uh, some not so nice ways. You know, we maintain this, this uh, page on our, our site called the Not Safe for Work Index, and we get a lot of negative inbound from people, uh, really aggressive stuff. And, you know, so I understand that these are sensitive issues. And I think back to the book, The Wisdom of Crowds. I'm not sure if you've read that. It's a, it's a great book. And, you know, his idea, the, basically the thesis of the, the author's idea is that more voices and more intense debates lead to better outcomes, right? And that's what we want. We always want more intense debates and better outcomes. So that's just where, where we are right now. We're kind of living in the fragments of a supernova, right? And we've got all this hot nebular gas flowing around. We're trying to figure out what's the future going to be. A lot of the aggressive inbound we, we get, I just attribute to the human immune system trying to do its work and say, is this person, is this entity a threat? Is it not? Mm-hmm. And challenging on us on that is very good. So back to your topic about competition, you know, obviously I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm interested in private enterprise and competition. So I think, more, you know, contests of ideas and competitions tend to lead to better outcomes, right? Just back to the idea of the wisdom of crowds. So 
for me, I think it's good. And I would say on our, in terms of our own cultural values, you know, certainly transparency is key. And, you know, the way that we operate internally with, with our investors and with our team is transparency is paramount. We make everything transparent. We err on the side of transparency. And I think that's really the only way we're going to get a strong antidote to the, the toxic kind of closed nature of things that have led us to this point. Yeah. I, so I would say for the listeners, for marketers, for everyone, I would hope your space that the companies are very public and very, um, very open to people knowing who they are, what they do, and that they are behind. Because they could just stay behind the scenes. And to me, it appears like, hey, if this is a bank and, and nobody knows it exists, it's a money laundering bank, most likely. And nobody knows their name and nobody wants, they don't want anybody to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if a company like yours, if nobody knew who they were and they just showed up somewhere in the background and in the terms of service for social media sites or something like that, and for marketing and ad sites, then I'd say, okay, that sounds like a data laundering company. Right. But the more public you are, because then your reputation and the trust in your company is of paramount importance to your success, the more public and consumer facing you can be and open about talking about these things and other companies doing what you're doing, the better it is for the, for, for the space. So I would hope you and other companies like yours are work very hard at being in front of the people and being out there rather than hiding. Uh, because I see when it comes to trust, if, you, if your product is trust and you're hiding, then mm-hmm. it's a bad sign. 100%. And I think you know, this concept that you have of data laundering is very fascinating. And it's not one that I, I didn't necessarily link the two in terms of money laundering and, and you know, facilitating data exchanges, but it's a good one. It's valuable. I need to make sure we spend some time thinking about that and make sure we or- organize something that is not just simple, simple data laundering. It's certainly not our goal, but it's something to be, be aware of. In fact, but just also a one, product differentiator, because yep. there are going to be companies like yours that are created specifically for data laundering. And, and, and absolutely. And we've seen some of, our, some of the competing companies that I know about are certainly using technologies that are either not going to work in privacy first in terms of leveraging, you know, cookies or cross domain scripts or sort of DNS hacks. Like these are things that just aren't going to work technically, but also philosophically, they're still kind of problematic because what we really try to build into to confection to make us immune to a lot of black hat sorts of um, uh, uh, black hat sensibilities is really this concept of compliance as well as you know, user management and control, right? So ultimately pushing a lot more power to the web user, right? And also making sure that we operate in compliance with the best practices of global privacy laws. Yeah, and I'd say the more you can highlight that, the more it separates you from the launderers and then yep. creates more trust for you. So in the competition part, what you really don't want are companies that look on the surface to be just like you, but are bad actors. Mm-hmm. Because eventually people will just lump your whole industry together. Mm-hmm. And the industry is kind of dead at that point if nobody trusts, if the default reaction is nobody trusts this. Um, and so that's if, the worst outcome, right? Yeah. The worst outcome is a systems collapse. Um, and, you know, it, it, something just to echo some, some sentiments I think that you have too, you know, generally I break the skeptics that we encounter into two different groups, right? These are free, I, I say one campus free thinkers and one campus fanatics, right? And so, you know, I really like the free thinkers. These are like show me personalities. They're like, you know, I'm not going to trust you. I want you to show me. But they give us a chance, right? And they say, okay, I understand what your marketing, uh, you know, collateral says. I understand what your product does. Now show me, right? Let's be transparent in these ways that you're talking about. 
And, you know, those people are rational and it can be a conversation. And I like those people very much, even if they express themselves in vulgar ways periodically, <laughs> you know, and send me aggressive <laughs> inbound. They still have an openness of, 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 of mind when it comes to these kinds of products, right? And then, so basically though, but the fanatics are a much different group, right? And these people are engaged in like a zero sum game where they think anything I do online, if someone is registers it, whether it's personally identifying or not, is a loss for me. And I'm angry about it, right? Well, they've the been fanatic. convinced that they yes. own their information too. That's right. You know, That's they, right. they just believe in that and they're not willing to think about philosophically what that actually means. Um, and also practically, Scott, you know, the idea of like, what is the logical extreme of a world driven by that zero sum game? And the truth is that, you know, what you're going to exchange, you're going to wind up exchanging a free and open web that's supported by da- uh, data exhaust and ads, right, for a pay to play one, you know, something like that, which is going to be much worse in terms of the hierarchies that's going to create. It's also, you know, you're essentially returning power, you know, uh, to entrenched players that you ostensibly hate. This would be, you know, like large um, social media companies and, and search engine companies where, you know, those are the people you hate. But by interrupting new technologies like confection, you wind up handing them more power because you're not allowing the ecosystem to, to flourish. They are the only, there is no open marketplace. If there's no, there's no open information. Well, monopoly, right? yeah. yeah. Then you just have the couple walled cities where people can go to put their ads. And that's the only place because they've gotten the permission and every small player is locked out. Yeah. And, and look, I understand the position of the fanatics. And I think something you, know, you and I have talked about during this conversation and others where I understand like their position is understandable enough, but I'm not sure they always think about the logical outcomes. It's like, do we want the web to come like, become like a down market 4chan, you know, which is without some kind of like financial incentives and penalties, you know, that both offset the cost of operating on the web and define property lines. You know, that's the kind of outcome you're going to get. It's just kind of this, anarcho syndicalist free-for-all, which is not good for, for anyone, businesses or even ultimately web users. All right. So it seems like we're looking for the balance between complete anarchy yes, and, and this locked down society. I like the analogy I've used is the movie Memento. Mm-hmm. Some people believe all companies should be the character from Memento, and they're just not allowed to remember anything once it leaves their site, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you, you just have to be this no, don't know anything about anything type type entity, and uh, both of those areas. There's got to be a balance in between that's that allows everybody to uh, to thrive. And um, back to this idea of like kind of living in the you know the aftermath of a supernova. I mean, this is what we're trying to do is we're trying to define new property lines. We're trying to define new product boundaries, new categories, and that's going to take some time. And I, I'm aware of that, you know. Um, and, but, but you're exactly right. I think, you know, this is what this process is. It's just a process of trying to figure out what the balance is and what the right, um, what the right lines are going forward. One thing I'd like to put out there for the listeners, just to, to give us some context. I don't think we brought this up, but we're talking about data, but there's a lot of different layers of data. There's your personally identifiable information. Then there's just information on how many cars pass through this intersection during this time frame, and what color were they? And those kind of, um, that kind of market, uh, market data, lots of examples of that kind of stuff on the internet and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a level of data, and I don't want people to think when I say you don't own your data, I'm talking about this level. Then there's the level of data that actually is private information, like oh, your credit card number, your social security number, your passport number. And so I always say there's data breaches where a database like my company's with business contact information becomes public online. Well, it turns out most companies like mine put that information publicly online. That's Mm -hmm. specifically what we do. Not a data breach Um, outside of our company, basically. If if our whole database was placed online accidentally, 
that's a data breach for us in that, wow, our asset, we just lost control of it, mm-hmm. but not for the individuals whose information was put up there because that's just all compiled from somewhere anyway. There's no cameras in bedrooms collecting information on people that, that ends up in companies like ours. Um, but when you have data breaches where you know a hotel chain was um, their servers are breached and information that includes credit card numbers and passport numbers and social security numbers and things where you're like, why do they even have that information? Yeah. Now you got a real, an actual data breach that's doing harm with people's information that they do own, that, that people do not have. And my belief on it really is I don't understand and know why any company is allowed to have somebody's social security number. It's unnecessary. There's plenty of companies that use it as their unique user ID. And it's just like, that's, that's ridiculous. How are you even allowed to have that? Why does that need to be there? Have your own ID. We don't use people's social security number in my company for the IDs on the record. So you just they get a unique ID with in, internally yep. in, in your, in your company. So there is, Why would this, you ever want to be responsible for storing that ever? Yeah. Why, why do you need, and they're just like, it's to me, it's laziness. It's yeah. this information already exists. Let's just use what's there. And it actually enables and you see this in the data structures when it comes to ha- people being hacked all the time. Um, you know, sometimes there's data breaches because somebody broke in and just accessed files. But sometimes, you know, a company's information ends up getting stolen because the structure that they set up was lazy from the start mm-hmm. and wasn't intended for the use it ended up being. And they just, oops, we have these IDs in these places that are viewable publicly. And then we reuse them later for something that should be private. Mm-hmm. And now, um, you know, we don't remember that this stuff was, was in the structure, mm-hmm. but as we grow and expand, it, it just creates all these um, dangerous data areas. So I, I, all that, I guess, is to say for the listeners, don't get us wrong. I think both, both you, Quimby, and, and myself, when we talk about about data and it being used, we're not talking about that kind of level of sensitive information. And That's we're true. not saying nobody owns anything about themselves. I, I'm, I'm saying, I don't believe anybody owns information that's been made public. Once yeah. it's public, it's public. Um, uh, but yeah. if I could just add one more, th- I think that's a really important topic. And so we you know, actually engineered Confection to never collect passwords, never collect social security numbers, credit cards and things like that. Because it's, first of all, it has low value and it's high risk. So why would you even wanna process yeah. that? Now, you know, we do that based on certain form field information in, that we know we want to omit. So we're always, it's an evolving resource. So I just want to be upfront about that. And also on a larger topic, you know, there's that great line that storage is cheap and bandwidth is expensive, right? And so the idea is that, you know, over the last couple of years, it's been sort of a free-for-all in terms of just collect everything you can and we'll sort it out. Maybe we need yeah. it, maybe we don't, let's just get it. And I think businesses have become, like you said, sort of lazy in a way with that. And I think going forward, you know, we're going to see a lot of economics, a lot of economic pressure that's going to essentially solve a lot of these problems by making people more selective about the data they collect. Do we need it? Do we not? How long do we need it? Because we've got to store it, right? And what was interesting is when we built Confection, we started to recognize that we really had flipped it for ourselves where the storage was going to be the expensive part and the bandwidth was relatively inexpensive for us because we kind of use us, we basically use a customer's own server to move information around. So what we found is that storing information, even for a moderate traffic site could be very, very expensive if you're writing into a traditional kind of lamp architecture, right? So I think going forward, as businesses begin to build up their first party data sets and they begin to manage more information and have to pay for that, it will inevitably lead to people making better decisions about what to store and what not to store. So I, th- I just wanted to underscore, I think you make a really good point. And we got some nice market forces working in our favor. I think you stumbled on an easy fix. Data storage just needs to be way more expensive. 
<laughs> well, so if we think about it, right, then this is a, a debate surrounding water right now, too. It's like, especially here in California, where I live. So it's like, yep. or I'm sorry, where we live, where you and I live. So the idea is that water, maybe it's too cheap, right? And so what we need to do is increase the penalties for water misuse. And so the idea that perhaps there's something similar to be done for an important other social utility like like data and data storage. Oh, if a if a private company had to own and manage the water in LA, right? No, nobody be watering their lawns with I. Okay, <laughs> this is a little bit of an offshoot, but that's what we do on this show. I tell people all the time, look, look, we flush drinkable water down the toilet. We it's almost like some sort of bizarre sci-fi movie. There's places in the world where when you look at what they're drinking, it's horrendous. And yet we're bathing in drinking water. We're just showering it on ourselves. We're pouring it on our lawns. We're and it's this weird kind of sci-fi. We're the the capital just with all this what we see as normal. Is insane ex- excess for them. They're like, wow, I don't have drinkable water that won't get my family sick. But these guys just turn this this shower on and let it pour over themselves would seem so bizarre when you put it in that kind of context. Oh, you're just letting this run down the drain. You're just what we do with water here because it costs so little, even though we live right. in a desert. It's like, oh, we're not paying the actual cost of of the water. Now, I think with Absolutely. data storage, you would have to make a fake cost for data storage because it is pretty pretty simple. But with water, it's we have a, actually a fake cost here for water in LA to where people just pour it all over the place. Nobody thinks about how long they shower, how much they water their lawn. It's, uh, you know, your water bill can get high, but ultimately it's not near what it should be. And nobody really considers what they're doing with water here in LA. Right. Um, versus- but I think that's germane to, you know, the topic that we're talking about. I mean, I think that undervaluing important social resources is a chronic issue that exists in data uh, science, as well as in water, as well as in you know, like land use, farming and things like that. So really back to this big picture topic that we're talking about is thinking about data as a social utility, as a social resource, as something that's important and both like invaluable and devalued at the same time, you know, just like our oceans and whatnot. These are, you know, conceptual shifts that we need to make if we're going to get a control get control over these important issues. And ultimately, I'm back to what your company does. People should want companies to know enough about them that they can approach them with only relevant things. You know, I think that's that's right, and that's kind of the consumer and business case for something like a confection where you go out and you're only building better, more actionable profiles about people, which means less waste, right? In terms of less junk mail, whether that whatever channel that comes through. I think it's an important point to keep in mind. Yeah. If you're going to have a hundred door-to-door marketers come by your house, you're going to want them to know one, if you don't want any coming by right. and just outlawing door-to-door marketing is not a feasible, I think, uh, way to manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going back to like a 1950s example, but just to make no, no, it much more tangible, yeah, no, um, it's good. like then the more they know about you, the better. They're like, no, no, no. I already, yes, I'm very into you know, this, I'm very into that. Okay. We're going to come by with these, these kinds of, of things so that maybe now only 10 come by in a day and then five and then one. And you, when the user can control that kind of thing, I think we get better outcomes. We get less waste in marketing. Um, targeting has become a huge topic. When I started in this industry, people would buy a list and it would just be, I need a list of uh, manufacturing. Okay. It's just, here's manufacturing industries and maybe you get a contact, maybe you get a contact information. Now it's people want, oh, I want these specific titles and these specific size companies, these specific industries, these geographies, these, and it gets 
down so much more detailed. And that allows the marketers to put more relevant messages in front of fewer people instead of, yeah, the Mad Men style, like we are going to throw this out to everybody and know that some of them are going to be relevant to us. 100%. And I think there are very few systems outside of energy and transportation where even moderate efficiency gains can have such outsized effects. And I'm talking about marketing here, you know, where the idea is like, you know, know, there are a few industries that have compound annual growth rates of 10% plus, right? And marketing and advertising are, are, it's one of those industries. So any kind of efficiency gain that you get is going to trickle down in amazing ways. And that's everything from the way people use their time, right? To the way people connect with businesses, to the kinds of products people buy. It just goes on and on and on. So I think of the industries available for efficiency gains, you know, marketing and advertising is one where the outsized payoff of even modest efficiency gains is, is gigantic. And you mentioned how people use their time, which brings me around to us running out of time here. There's a couple of things I still want to get to. We've just been flying through this. Um, I want to get to you. We haven't really talked about you and how you got to where you are. You've had this, this eclectic range of, of companies you've been involved with. Um, can you tell the listeners a little about, about your journey and ultimately, what caused you to create this company? That's great. So, you know, as the specifics on me, you know, I'm from a small town in Georgia and I lived in, um, I went to University of Georgia for college and I moved out to Las Vegas where back to the idea of water rights and water usage that Las Vegas is a crazy place for water. So I lived there for a long time. Um, and then my wife and I moved down to Southern California and now we live up in the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, confection really grew out of a very simple a very simple request. We, before uh, confection, I ran an agency called Studio Hyperset. And one of our customers here in the Bay Area emailed us one day and said, hey, why are, why are our um, Marketo forms not appearing in Brave, right? And we went and checked that out. And essentially what happens is Marketo is part of the Adobe marketing suite. So when it loads, it brings in a ton of different ads, right? So we saw that and we thought, oh my goodness, right? Like this is what we're going to see going forward um, in terms of when Google flips the switch on third-party cookies. And that was really the er moment when we started thinking about building a system that could was immune to these challenges in some ways would gain from uh, the collapse of the existing system. And, you know, the goals we wanted to, to put out there in terms of how do we build something that's better for people, right? And enhances trust between people and businesses. How do we build something that makes people in the marketing operations and, and, and advertising makes their job easy, easier and more impactful? So those questions really grew out of that moment, which is a really, really um, interesting moment when you kind of saw the 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 full impact of this problem for the first time. And honestly, ever since then, Scott, it's just been a process of kind of trying to figure out a way to communicate that impact in a way that's effective. Because if I lead with some of the, num- the big numbers we have, right, people just kind of shut down. So um, <laughs> because there, it's, it's, it's almost, it's just too big. And sometimes I think about it in terms of there's a great metaphor in, in Buddhism about uh, Buddhism being this complex thing as described by, uh, by, by, by blind men, right? So one person feels a tail and says, this is a snake, right? Another person feels a leg and says, this is a tree and so on and so forth. And everyone kind of gets a piece of the whole, but they, they miss the entire animal. And I think that's the way it is with privacy first too, is it's so complicated and it's so far reaching that it can be difficult to digest the, the big picture. And that's, right. that's my day-to-day job is helping people digest that reality. People hear data and they're just like, this is bad. I heard the word data. Um, that kind of it's two things. It's that it's a, kind of a reflexiveness, like data bad and also uh, cookies. Like it does, it comes up time and time again. So it's these kind of triggers that people have. So I spend a lot of times going into conversations through those two paths. So you got to be really confusing for them because they hear data and they think bad, but then they hear personalization, data privacy, and they think good. And then they don't know what the hell to think anymore. 
Well, you know, this is why marketing is the, I love marketing because it's this great blend of storytelling and math, right? And so like <laughs> constantly going back and forth where you're kind of like telling the story and then checking the math to make see how it's working. So it's one of the reasons I love it. So here we are again, you know, back to the idea of marketing, really pulling its weight and saying, if this thing's going to work, right? You know, we really have to tell a compelling story. We have to get people involved and we have to explain to them what we are and are not doing and what our goals are. So it's, again, this is the best job I've ever had. And I get up happy every day and love doing it. So the challenge is part of the fun. It sounds like a hell of a challenge. Um, good good luck. The, the messaging around something like this and, and how it's put out there. I, I know I'm going to be very interested to see how, how you and companies like yours kind of evolve and what happens in this, in this space. Um, very exciting, volatile um, space right now with these huge players and this huge stuff going on. Um, so, so, so really interesting. Any, any final things you'd like to leave the, uh, the listeners with? Well, I'm going to get to your company a little more and where they can find you and, and all that in just a second. But uh, on this topic of planning, planning for a privacy first, um, privacy first marketing, I, I guess, I don't even know if we've hardly touched on this other than philosophically, <laughs> the actual topic. But uh, so let's give people one thing. What's something people can do to plan for privacy first marketing, your average company um, nowadays, a marketer in that company? So back to the me trying to eat my cake and have it too, you know, so the points that I made about audience driven, driven insights and first party data, notwithstanding as important as they are, I would also say, you know, not to underestimate the power of anonymous data, you know, and I think aggregate and anonymous data is just as powerful and useful and actionable as PI, you know. And this is me eating the cake, and I apologize for that. But, you know, I think that ABM marketers and B2C marketers, um, they tend to uh, undervalue aggregate data and macro trends and whatnot. So just another thing I, I tend to think is that marketing and finance actually have a lot in common where they're, again, both about storytelling and math. And so the idea is if you can generate actionable models and indexes that allow you to track your performance over time, you know, most of the most useful data sets that I have are anonymous data sets, because really what I want to check for is trends. I want to see what's working, what isn't. Um, and so one takeaway I would say is, you know, just being aware that that non-PI is just as important as PI. And as we move forward in time, I would say, you know, Confection's real goal is probably to keep actionable data sets flowing, whether they are identifiably uh, with, identifiable with a certain person or more aggregate and anonymous. Well, that is kind of funny. Because as a marketer, who cares who the person is that you're putting the information in front of? Like you're putting you're putting your ad in front of them, and they're going to go do a thing you want them to or not. Does it matter that you know their name and other you know personally identifiable information in in order for them to do that action? You don't have to know who they are. They aren't you know they they don't have to sign a check and send it to you. Ultimately, they're probably buying something from you. And if yep. they buy it anonymously, or if you know what their name is, it doesn't really matter. Like, who cares? Right. And I would say that's probably, you know, obviously more true with B2C and probably less true with like ABM, B2B style marketing. But with B2C, I think it's especially true where you're trying to build aggregate tides, right? You're trying to bring in more than just John Doe and Jane Doe. You want to bring in a whole community to buy your product <laughs> and to rebuy your product. So. Yeah. And I mean, we really focus specifically on B2B here. And I would say in B2B also, who cares up to the point that you're going to know who they are when they buy, but you don't have to know all you're, you're losing is potentially that linkage between this being able to track all the way back to the original source data. So you'll know, you know, the, you know, these people bought. And so I guess it's getting this hybrid of the, um, uh, of going back to Mad Men marketing and, 
in today's marketing where you have this disconnect between um, you have all this targeted information and then you have the buyers, but you can't quite make that final connection between here's the exact targeted information and here's, and, um, and then here's the end buyer. You're going to know who they are. Once they become a client, you're kind of allowed to have client information in your system, even under GDP. And I guess that's where you become GDPR compliant. Cause you're saying, Hey, once they buy your product, they're opted in for you to have their info. But yeah. before that, they're going to be anonymous in a system like yours. And again, who cares? Who cares about that disconnect? Little. And you know, I know it's a paradox. And I know, again, having your cake and eating it too. But I really want it both ways. You know, I think that there is a time and a place for each one. And back to the idea of these market forces really acting as a cleansing agent for the system, right? Where, you know, essentially you could say, we're going to have to be more choosy about what PII we have, right? Which means we're going to be more and more reliant on um on anonymous information, which is fine because there's a place for that and you can do a lot of good work with that. So that would be the one thing I want people to take away is uh, keeping that in mind. Use your math skills, marketers. That's what I would say. (laughs) Again, is there something marketers can do to prepare for the the future of privacy first marketing? Um, Or is it just really just like, hey, people are working on this stuff. You'll know when it happens. Right. Um, You know, I think I think that we already live in that reality. Maybe that's another important thing to realize is like, this is something we need to build for starting today and probably, you know, it should have been done yesterday, right? So I think that thinking about the systems that you use and how they work in tandem with one another, how the pieces of your stack operate with one another, what's breaking. And honestly, I mean, Scott, it can be a little challenging to know what's breaking because you can't track what you can't see, right? So some of this data is just sort of lost in the ether. So it's difficult to say the system's failing. But I would say, you know, a, a, a top to bottom, soup to nuts kind of analysis of your marketing operations stack, where information is flowing from, what your highest priorities are in terms of get data gathering, and build a new stack, right? Build a new privacy first stack. And I think tools like Confection can be really helpful for fueling that stack. But at the end of the day, it's up to every individual business or every individual marketing team to come up with a stack that's going to work best for them um, and uh, give them the most robust architecture in a privacy first future. So a very large companies that have very large marketing machines may have some of these complex channels that they're in that have broken pieces in them now. We're going to have more and more broken pieces and simplifying your marketing a bit may help avoid some of that. Maybe Simplifying is always a good move. Hmm. Yes. Um, And just reviewing again, the way data flows between these, these systems and what are you relying on, you know? Um, And uh, I, I think that's, that's the right, the right question to ask. You know, systems level thinking, you know, instead of just tools level thinking. Marketers need to constantly be looking at what's going on so they can make adjustments anyway. It's just now they have to consider that something may be broken in the middle sometimes. And some things may have to be cut out at some point just because there's there's a a breakage in your attribution or who knows what all kinds of targeting and and stuff like that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's, you know, depending on the size of the organization, it may be more or less complex, but I suspect most, you know, companies in my world and technology companies in the Bay Area, they probably use a handful of, of tools, you know, and it's relatively easy to say, okay, how is stuff flowing into to Salesforce and Pardot, right? What are the channels that are delivering this? How is it impacted? So I think once you get into larger, like big, big scale businesses, that can be more and more challenging. But I think for most, um, you know, early stage companies, it's relatively easy and also mid-sized as well. Final question, I promise. Should, should companies be inspecting their, like their digital ad spend? Mm-hmm. Because some of that stuff is kind of like, hey, you set it up, you pay these people for the digital ad yeah. spend. And they might not necessarily let you know that things are broken in, be, in here. Yes. 
should they be constantly looking at their digital ad spend to make sure that it's not just kind of pouring into a hole that's not going to let them know? Yeah. So Scott, we simple answer yes. Talk, this is a big, <laughs> yeah. So this is a simple answer is yes. And I would say this is a big topic. We do an entire episode on this. So I'm like making sure that your pipeline is finely tuned. And I would say anyone who's interested in talking more about that, just shoot me an email. I've got a lot of great spreadsheets and some PDF documents that'll help you make sure that you're organizing your uh, funnel in a way. The short answer is yes. And I think that the number one source of waste um, for most businesses, large and small, is a digital uh, uh, campaign, right? That the spend could never be offset by the customer value. So for me, the largest question of all is always, what is our customer worth, right? And if you get that customer value set down correctly, you know, like I have friends who are consultants, you know, they have six figure clients, they can spend whatever they want to on marketing because it will always be offset by the spend. So I would say, pay attention to your customer value. Make sure that what you're spending is, is, is in uh, harmony with that, uh, with that customer value. Hmm. So, I mean, are you saying that there might be new waste in there that's just kind of hidden in the profit because it's going to be profitable anyway, you may have a lot of the spend going to waste, but because you get a couple big deals out of it, you're not going to notice. So I, so into the math of it, you know, I have some uh, some spreadsheets where we work out a couple of formulas, right? And it's really difficult based on best practice benchmarks of of CTR, like click through rates, um, what you spend to reach a thousand people CPM, right? It's very difficult, even when you have benchmark rates in there, to offset the cost of moving from the top of the funnel down, unless your customer value is north of five hundred dollars. So, in my mind, there's really it's it's I guess it's somewhat there are people who would, who would argue with me on this, but I don't think there's much of a retail market for digital advertising, right? So I think if you're spending on digital, like you can't be selling t-shirts, you know, you need to be right. selling things like your business does, right? Or like, you know, my friends who are consultants and whatnot, that makes sense because if you hit everything down the funnel, right? All that spending is going to be offset by the big gain at the bottom. But if the big gain at the bottom is a $10 t-shirt, it's very difficult to see how that works for you. So, um, so yes. Yeah. So again, I think People would argue with me about this, but I feel pretty strongly that there's really no retail market for, for digital advertising. Fantastic. Well, that's going to be a great spot for us to end here. You'd mentioned, uh, do you want to throw out your email for, for the listeners? We won't put it in the show notes because I don't want companies like ours to scrape the data and then you get junk emailed a bunch. But uh... <laughs> Everybody can just email me at git at confection.io. You can email me anytime. And uh, you know any of these topics about confection specifically are more important. You know the sort of big picture marketing spending talk, uh, topics we're talking about. Feel free to email me anytime. Fantastic, and we will uh, we'll put up on the show notes. We'll put information uh, confection.io website. Um, we will put Quimby's uh, LinkedIn profile link up there for you if you want to find him on LinkedIn. I'm yeah, sure that's another way. There. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Yep. And then anything else you want us to to throw out on how to how to contact you guys. I know that's, that's the best way, you know, our, our website is uh, confection.io. You can get us there. And uh, like Scott said, you can reach out with me on, uh, on LinkedIn. I'm always there. Fantastic. And of course uh, we are the, if you market podcast, you can find uh, the show notes on this episode and more information on if you market.com. And uh, please do give us a good review on iTunes. If you haven't already shame on you. And uh, on behalf of the, if you market team and Quimby Melton of confection, thank you for listening to the, if you market podcast where we believe if you market the shit out of it with, uh, I don't know what to do for this topic in that if you market the shit out of it with uh, privacy first marketing, they will come. Are you looking for new leads or always in need of quality contacts for your marketing campaigns? But list companies and online tools are the worst, right? 
Well, then you've got to check out Top Data Search by Mountaintop Data. At Mountaintop Data, we're a team of weird people that actually like getting our hands dirty with sales and marketing data, and we specialize in business contact information. We compile and maintain a database of tens of millions of targeted high-quality business decision makers with emails, phone numbers, mailing address, and all the information you need. Go to topdatasearch.com and request a free account with the promo code IYM1000, like if you market the podcast here, and get a free account with unlimited searches, no seat fees, and 1,000 free record download credits. That's topdatasearch.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.